This is not the media. This is hell. Well, that was embarrassing. If anyone has any pride left in being from the United States, apparently you were not watching last night's presidential shit show. Now, I usually wouldn't be using that term, but when not one but two CNN commentators describe what was aired last night in that way, you end up agreeing with CNN for the first time in who knows how long. Everyone in the United States who watched that debate last night should have woken up this morning with a sense of shame that leads every one of us to question the legitimacy of not only the two pathetic candidates who are vying for the presidency, but both political parties and our entire electoral process. Sure, we should all feel shame that we have an artifact of slavery and an institution of white supremacy and privilege, like the Electoral College choosing who our elected representatives will be. But if you still think, after watching last night, that representative democracy works, then you're probably not watching the debate. Instead, you are likely watching the History Channel series, America's Book of Secrets. If you've not seen that show, I strongly suggest you do, so you know where all the QAnon conspiracy theories come from, and nearly every conspiracy theory originates. Yes, while the United States is selecting what we used to call the leader of the free world, a phrase that was arrogant and misleading and well a lie, while we are trying to make an informed decision on who should be president for the next four years, the History Channel is running a show on hidden agendas, the Illuminati, billionaires, and the powerful's real mission in making us all pawns in their satanic war on us. Want to know where QAnon came from? Turn on the History Channel and watch their far-right conspiracy theory propaganda that plays right into the hands of the Trump administration. It's like a a 24-7 Trump administration commercial propaganda show. Hey, it's better than watching whatever that was last night. It wasn't a debate, as debates have rules, and the people involved follow those rules. And those who are good at debating don't constantly interrupt the person they are debating, and they certainly don't lower themselves to the level of telling the other person to shut up twice. Studies show that the debates have absolutely no effect on how 70% of voters in the U.S. will vote in an upcoming election. Having watched last night's debate, you got to figure at least 70% of viewers were wondering why they vote at all. The Republican and Democratic parties are an embarrassment. The Electoral College's continued existence should all make us hang our heads in shame. Every person in the United States should have woken up from last night's nightmare humiliated with a sense of mortification that makes each and every one of us denying that we are from the United States, pretending we're, I don't know, I'm going to pretend I'm Canadian from now on. And by the way, Canada was embarrassed for us last night, too. It wasn't just us. This is from the CBC's website. The first debate of this fall's U.S. presidential election achieved the rare feat of uniting the pundits in a notoriously divided country. They found near unity in their dismay. The point of agreement was that this was a sad spectacle for what's sometimes described as the world's oldest democracy. The 90-minute affair concluded with a surreal exchange about whether the United States is in fact about to have a clean election. In this debate, Donald Trump, the president of the United States, complained about mailed ballots and said, it's a rigged election. Several minutes later, the moderator had asked him to condemn white supremacists and militia-like groups, and the president pushed back. What do you want me to call them? Give me a name, Trump responded. And when his opponent, Joe Biden, mentioned the Proud Boys group, the president said something that triggered a celebratory reaction in far-right online circles. Trump said, Proud Boys, stand back and stand by. But I'll tell you what, somebody's got to do something about Antifa and the left. Yes, in Canada, they call a debate 
where the president of the United States refuses to condemn white supremacy and then tells violent thugs to stand back and stand by. The utter, utterly, utterly Canadian insult of, according to the BBC, not a very good night. If you think that we, what we have here in the United States is a democracy, last night proved you wrong. This isn't a democracy, but a sham, a con put on by two organizations enabled by a media they pay off with political advertising dollars that have taken democracy hostage, insist on a ransom every election day, and never release the victim no matter how many times we pay. The United States and all its voters suffer from Stockholm Syndrome, where we somehow have a feeling of trust or affection toward our abusive kidnappers who will forever refuse to give us the freedom we desire and deserve. And with what we saw last night, I don't mean to rub your nose in it, but I told you this is hell. And on today's show, if you thought last night's debate was the death knell of representative democracy in the United States, wait until you hear about U.S. trade deals that have nothing to do with trade and everything to do with exporting the worst of the United States and other countries, imposing all the most destructive aspects of the U.S. on the rest of the world. Our industrial agriculture system that, as yesterday's guest argued, is not only destroying our biosphere and contributing to climate change, but it is also an excellent vehicle for distributing pathogens and causing global pandemics. Yes, trade deals are not about tariffs anymore. They're about the U.S. pushing neoliberalism, inequality, surveillance, and bad food that is killing us, and we're going to impose it on the rest of the world. We'll find out what trade deals are really all about in a few when we speak with Nick Dearden, director of Global Justice Now. His most recent writing includes the article at opendemocracy.net, we must defeat the U.S. trade deal, food standards, the price of medicine and climate action are on the slab in the biggest assault on Britain's sovereignty in modern history. The article is an excerpt from Nick's book, Trade Secrets, the truth about the U.S. trade deal and how we can stop it, which you can read for free at tradesecrets.globaljustice.org. UK. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show podcast live stream host, Chuck Mertz, producing this morning's show, Alex Jerry. Alex, what's this week's question from hell? This week's question from hell is, what's at the bottom of your downward spiral? What is at the bottom of your downward spiral? Is this some sort of homage to Nine Inch Nails, by the way? No, I got really mad when I thought about that. Can't I just have a downward spiral that's uh, removed from pop culture? I thought about that, and I was looking for images, uh, and then it was all Nine Inch Nails stuff, but uh, I'd already committed to the question. It it, uh, it was so weird today, because I get the Times, and I open up a uh, paper. Front page of the art section is about an Arab immigrant who moved to Kentucky, and he said that his life was changed by the album Nine Inch Nails, uh, Nine Inch Nails album, uh, The Downward Spiral, because uh, he said he felt like such an outcast. But that album got him through. And I saw that in the paper, and I was like, oh, yeah, Nine Inch Nails had an album called Downward Spiral. I totally forgot. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question mail wins our new gray on black This Is Hell trucker's cap. You can check out the new gray on black This Is Hell trucker's cap by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question mail at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. But you have to have your answer in by the end of tomorrow's show. Yesterday I kept saying that Jeff Dorchin was doing a moment of truth tomorrow. He is not. So we are going to be uh, revealing the winner to this week's question from hell. After our guest tomorrow, again, this week's question mail is, what's at the bottom of your downward spiral? Live from Hangover Country, this is hell. Let me put that aside for a moment. No, no, let me do that now. We are looking for new volunteer board operators to join us here on This Is Hell. If you are interested, email me at chuck at thisishell.com, chuck at thisishell.com. 
There's a very modest stipend involved. Uh, we would need you to be living in the Chicago area. That would be really fantastic to make it a lot more convenient for you to be running our board. And you have to be here at 10 a.m. on weekdays at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue here in Chicago. We are very flexible with your schedule, so if you want to do it one, two, three, four, or even five times a week, we can work around your schedule. Or one, two, three, four, five times a month, we can work around that as well. So if you are interested, send us an email at chuck at this is hell.com chuck at this is hell.com we are always asking listeners to send us emails tweets whatever direct message us but we're also telling listeners that you can send us anything that you want to this is hell 2251 west devon avenue second floor chicago illinois 60659 and tyler did that and tyler I cannot thank you enough. This is, what you sent is absolutely stunning. What we got looked like an album cover, but one side looks like the size of an album, I should say. Uh, One side is made of wood, and the other side is made of cardboard. I opened it up, and Alex, it was revealed to me a piece of art, and you are going to love this. It is two astronauts staring at the Earth, One is saying to the other one, wait, this is hell? The other astronaut is saying, always has been and has a gun at the back of the head of the other astronaut. This is spectacular art. Spectacular. Alex is going to be uh, taking a picture of this and sharing an image of it online. Thank you so much, Tyler. Again, anybody can send us anything to This Is Hell. 2251 West Devon, second floor, Chicago, Illinois, 60659. And we also got an email this week from Daniel, who writes with a guest suggestion. Daniel writes, Chuck, I've just had my mind blown by the writer Nina Illingworth, whom I had not heard of prior to today. I've been aware of the fascist creep, as she calls it, for some time, and have been reading volumes on 20th century fascism for some time now, hoping to glean some hope or at least some direction. Nina's writing because it is explicitly anti-fascist, is in Mark Zuckerberg's crosshairs. And she was she's moved all of her writings to other platforms ahead of what she expects is an inevitable nuking from Facebook. Yeah, I always thought that was going to happen to us too, but it never does. Below are a couple of intros to her work, blah, blah, blah. So he sends a couple of links. One of the links is to Nina's blog at Nina Illingworth blogspot, ninaillingworth.blogspot.com. Here's a sample of her work. Being uh, uh, Beginning on May 30th, at the height of the protests in response to the extrajudicial execution of George Floyd by Minneapolis murder pigs. Yeah, never had a guest on our show say murder pigs before. Defense attorney T. Greg Doucette, I guess, began compiling a Twitter thread of graphic examples of police violence against largely peaceful demonstrators, the vast majority of which include video evidence, from soccer moms in Portland being tear gassed to police ripping off a man's artificial legs, and with virtually every type of cracker pig, murder pig, cracker pig, Nina's words, not mine, cracker pig violence imaginable in between, Doucette's thread, which as of this writing stands at a shocking 870 examples of police brutality and contains additional threads with hundreds more examples, each in their own right, shows American law enforcement at its finest hour if you're a fascist. So thanks, Daniel. We will look into Nina's work. If Zuckerberg hates it, it's probably right for our show. And we've never had a guest say murder pig or cracker pig on the show, so there's that. 
We also got an email from Jim in Skokie who writes, You're right in the show I heard yesterday. Your audio archives could use some serious work. I'm not far from you and would love to lend a hand after November 3rd if we're still standing. Thanks, Jim. And we will be contacting you about that remote work if you are interested in contributing to This Is Hell by doing some remote work. All you have to do is contact us at chuck at thisishell.com. Jim continues, Anyway, I didn't spot till yesterday via SoundCloud that you had Greg Palast on the show of his uh, on the day of his book release July 16th episode 1203 Greg's one of my essential authors this season, along with David K. Johnston, that prophetic making of Donald Trump in particular, and your friend, the baffling Thomas Frank, who's What's the Matter with Kansas, Listen Liberal, and Brand New, The People Know, are keeping me sane and ranting, playing up being an apprentice to you. Co-quarantining family are begging me to shut up, but no matter. Anyway, have I overlooked any recent interviews with Thomas Frank, or is it time to get him on again? I know his vision of progressive populism seems absurdly optimistic this week, but I'm still cheering over Bernie's Trump v. Democracy and Democracy Must Win talk at George Washington University last week in his rural town hall this week with People's Action. I had no idea that either of those things happened. So if you're Thomas Frank, on, if, so if you have Thomas Frank on your show this season, please let me know if I. I've overlooked it, and if not, book him. And I'm really happy to hear you saying you've got so many listeners down in Champaign, Illinois. Spent way too long as a grad student and local green down there at the turn of the century. Never had happened to cross this as hell till I was in range of WNUR up here on the North Shore a decade back, and I'm proselytizing attic for you. Jim from Skokie. Thanks, Jim from Skokie. Yes, we're working on getting Tom back on the show. You are the third listener to email us asking us, to have him back on and why we haven't had him on yet. And I believe Alex is already working on a date now. So, yes, Thomas Frank will be back on the show and soon. Finally, we got a message via Facebook from JG, who writes, Hey, Chuck, first, wanted to say that I take real inspiration from the work you're doing. Also wanted to ask you, ask how you stay in the loop or book guests so regularly. I do about four shows a week, so am looking for tips in that regard. Also, in particular, I'm trying to contact David K. Johnston. If you have any tips on how I can reach him, let me know. Sincerely, J.G. Michael, host and producer of Parallax Views. Now, I know the movie Parallax View, but I don't know the podcast. But for all of you who are doing a podcast and want to know how to book guests and get their contact information, here is our secret. First, do a show for roughly 25 years to accumulate contact information. If you cannot wait that long, then go to the person's website or Twitter account and get their information there. Then write to them directly. Avoid a public relations flack as much as possible and ask the person to be on your show. I know the media probably shouldn't be revealing any trade secrets and especially not the secrets that have made us such a success, but this is not the media. This is hell coming up. On This Is Hell, the truth about U.S. trade deals and more of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, what's at the bottom of your downward spiral? What's at the bottom of your downward spiral? I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show, live stream, and podcast host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Alex Jerry. Noam Chomsky called This Is Hell sanity and talk radio so clearly and sadly. Noam's gone insane. This is hell. When you think of trade deals, you think of negotiating tariffs on goods in an attempt to make that trade either 
uh, more to your advantage or even fair for both sides of the bargaining table. But that's not what trade deals are anymore. In fact, they have little to do with trading goods back and forth as much as they have to do with circumventing democracy in order to impose on citizens undemocratic processes like neoliberalism. Here to help us understand what trade deals are really all about nowadays, Nick Dearden is director of Global Justice Now, which is a democratic social justice organization working as part of a global movement to challenge the powerful and create a more just and equal world. Nick's most recent writing includes the OpenDemocracy.net piece, We Must Defeat the U.S. Trade Deal, Food Standards, The Price of Medicine and Climate Action Around the Slab, in the biggest assault on Britain's sovereignty in modern history. The article is an excerpt from Nick's book, Trade Secrets, The Truth About the U.S. Trade Deal and How We Can Stop It, which you can read for free at Trade Secrets. Dot globaljustice.org.uk. Welcome to This Is Hell, Nick. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me on. You write there's a part of Britain's establishment which has always looked to the United States for leadership for these Atlanticists. Britain's special relationship with the U.S. is about much more than a shared history or culture. Rather, they look longingly at the U.S. as a model economy in which big business can behave as it sees fit and rich individuals are free from irritating burdens like public health care and redistributive taxes. How influential is this libertarian, if you will, part of Britain's establishment? Are they, are they a small group with outsized influence or are they a, a major guiding force by numbers and influence in Britain? I'd say our elite has, has always been um, divided um, between um, those who look more um, to the US and those who look more uh, to Europe. Um, and those who look more to the US, they're an interesting group. They they are quite libertarian in, in certain ways, quite equivalent to, to, to your libertarians um, over there. Uh, but um, in particular, they absolutely embrace um, the power of the market to decide just about anything um, that happens in society. They also tend to have a, a, a hankering after after the lost days of, of of empire. I mean, they tend to be quite delusional people um, who 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 would just love to um, find themselves in the middle of the 19th century when when Britain ruled the waves um, and and the trade relationships that we set with countries all over the world um, were the rules that everybody was forced to live by. Um, and 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 really. Really, um, what, what's happened in the last few years is this group has managed to, to kind of assemble a coalition um, really based on very different interests around this project for, for leaving the European Union. And, and at the absolute center of that for them is, is the desire to push um, a trade deal with the United States to bring us closer to that, that kind of vision um, that they've got for this country. I would say many people um, who, who voted to leave the European Union um, didn't quite understand Stand. I mean, it, it, it certainly don't for a minute think that half of the, the British population agrees with these people. Um, but they managed to assemble a coalition from a, for a variety of reasons, you know, in some ways not dissimilar to what to what Trump's managed to do in the US. So how how did what the campaigners were saying, what Brexit was going to be, how did that differ from what it ended up being, from what they knew it was going to be, and how did that differ from what the supporters, not just the campaigners, but the supporters of Brexit wanted from Brexit? 
Well, in some ways, they just blatantly lied. Uh, I mean, um, I don't know if you saw it over there. It's quite famous here now. But there was a bus put together by the by the um, the Brexit campaigners, the leaders of the Brexit campaigners, that simply said, "We will spend this much extra on the national health service every year." Um, I mean, they had no intention of doing that. They were just saying, "This is the amount of money it costs us to be part of the European Union." They kind of made that figure up anyway. Um, and 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 look at all the things. Look at all the wonderful things you want us to do that we could do with that money. And it convinced an awful lot of people. You know, it's, it, we have a very um, unequal country here. And, and there are large parts of this country that were de-industrialized in the 1980s, um, where, frankly, you know, people's communities have just been forgotten, just been marginalized, left behind. And the people there who, who lost their jobs because of decisions made by the government were told it was kind of their fault. And you just need to pull up your socks and get on with it and go and find some work. And, and for people like like that, that, that there have been, there's been years and years of frustration and, and anger. Um, and, and I think they saw Brexit as a way to reclaim some kind of lost past um, and a way to kick against the establishment. What, what they didn't recognize maybe in many cases was was that the, the leaders of, of, of this move um, had quite a different plan in mind. And their plan was all about liberalization and deregulation, you know, the same old story um, and, and handing power to big, mar- to, to big business and handing power to the markets. Actually, what many of those people wanted was was more security, um, was, um, was, was kind of regaining the, what they felt was that was a lost society. Um, and they were hoodwinked, I would argue um, by 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 this part of our elite who are now represented in in our government in 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 big numbers um, you know they they took over the conservative party um, and they've now taken over the country you've mentioned a lost past a lost society you mentioned how atlanticists even look romantically back at empire even wanted to return and all that was making me think about how here in the United States we, you know, embrace the idea of American exceptionalism and American innocence. Is that part of the Atlanticist view as well, this kind of view of British exceptionalism and innocence? That's absolutely true. That's absolutely true. So for a lot of these people, you've got to remember, a lot of our ruling elite go to special schools that cost a lot of money. You know, we call them public schools. I know that's different from, from your public schools, but they're elite private schools, essentially. That's, that, 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 that's where they're educated. And they're still educated in a, in a way um, that, that, that kind of tells them, look, we ran an empire and, and we're bringing you up to run an empire. And the empire that they, they find out isn't really there. Um, but, but, but they have a completely exceptional view therefore, of, of, of Britain's role in the world. And for a lot of these people, the idea of going into the European Union in the 1970s and having to negotiate with a bunch of, of nations and a bunch of governments that were equal to us, they, they took as a, a personal affront. Uh, you know, why should we have to do this? And and they really see the European Union. And it's extraordinary because I should say here, you know, I'm not the greatest fan in the world of the European Union. There's lots and lots of problems with it, most notably that I think it's been captured by big business in the same way that all of our societies have. Um, but 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 to this part of the British elite, the European Union, uh, they, they saw as some kind of communist bureaucracy or something, something that was holding us back um, from, um, from, yeah, from living our exceptionalism, from unleashing the power of the market and unleashing the power of, of, of the British state in the world. Um, and so in, in, in many ways, yeah, they're, they're 
they're, they're, they're quite deluded, but they played on this idea um, of we once had a great past and we can have it again. Very, very much like, as you say, make America great again. It was it's 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 a very similar mindset. You write that trade deals today go well beyond negotiations around duties on imports. They affect how we regulate food production, how we provide public services, how we're allowed to regulate big business and foreign investment, and how much we are charged for our medicines, particularly since the high point of corporate globalization in the mid-1990s. Trade deals have increasingly shaped what sort of society we live in, promoting a model of free market economics together with tools to discipline governments that step away from this model. How are trade deals different today than they were in the past? To what degree does the public even realize the extent to which trade deals have an impact on nearly every part of society? Well, I think it's getting more and more, um, but 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 we've got a steep hill to climb because look, we, we've been told by politicians, haven't we, for 20, 30 years or more, um, free trade is the answer to all of our problems. Uh, if we just uh, deregulate and liberalize and trade with as many countries as we, po- as we possibly can, jobs will be created and we'll all be more prosperous. Um, Actually, what we found is is that's not true. And many of the problems we're living with now, I think, are, are absolutely related to this idea that, you know, you just hand over society to the market and see what happens. Um, well, this is what happens. <laughs> you, you, you get the kind of major political crisis we're in. Um, but look, in, in the mid 90s, um, th- th- there was actually a move to massively expand what was meant by trade. So we used to be talking, as you say, about reducing tariffs, essentially. Tariffs today are very low. Between Britain and the United States, we have very, very low levels of tariffs, historically low levels of tariffs. Fine. Um, But actually, the whole point for the British establishment of of, of doing a trade deal with the US is not really to lower tariffs. You could bring them down on one or two lines. It doesn't doesn't make much difference either way. But it's actually to, to create some kind of alignment, some kind of regulatory alignment across all manner of standards and protections and regulations that govern our society. And and, and this was a change in trade that was brought in in, in in the mid-90s, when a lot of big businesses who wanted to be able to control the way the global economy worked s- thought, actually, let's put this stuff in trade deals because trade deals are really enforceable. At a global level. So if we want something to work in in a certain way, putting them in trade deals is a good idea. So at that point in the mid 90s, you had all of these things brought into trade deals like intellectual property, right, which actually really has very little to do with the free market in the way Adam Smith talked about it. I mean, it's giving monopolies to some of the richest corporations in the world so that they can sit on their medicines or whatever else for, for decades and charge whatever the market will bear for them. Um, so all these different things were brought into trade. I mean, there's an incredible um, uh, a, a legal process. It's called ISDS, Investor State Dispute Settlement. We, we call it the corporate court system. It's a bit easier to remember, which basically allows big business from the country you're trading with to sue your government if your government introduces a regulation that the, that the business doesn't like, that thinks it's unfair or discriminatory or in some way expropriates its assets. And these things have been used all over the world, um, to, to especially to bully developing countries. I mean, developing countries that try and, you know, improve their environmental regulations or improve public health or whatever, they, they get slapped with these kind of um, legal cases all the time. They don't have to go through the normal courts like us little people. They have their own parallel um, uh, arbitration system that's built into trade deals. Nothing could better kind of uh, express, expose um, the way that trade um, really has become something, trade rules have become something that infringe on our democratic rights at a fundamental level. Now, one of the things that people here are really concerned about with the US trade deal is we have pretty 
different farming standards um, here. I know in the US, you know, small farmers are, are kind of a thing of the past. Of course, there are still some, but farming is done on a, on a massive, massive scale with lots of uh, chemicals and antibiotics. Um, and we don't have that in, in, in Britain at the moment. I'm not saying it's perfect, but, um, but, but our worry is by doing a trade deal with the US that rather than talking about tariffs, is talking about these kind of non-tariff barriers, these regulatory systems. We will come to a deal which agrees that our standards are the same, even though they're not really, that we import a load more stuff um, into our markets that makes it impossible for farmers here to compete with that industrial model of agriculture. And people are really worried about that. Farmers are really, really worried about it. And it's, it's an example of the way that trade deals today kind of impose this race to the bottom in terms of standards or regulations. Because if you're just going to say all of these standards, all of these regulations, all of these protections are the same, doesn't really matter. They have the same objective. Don't worry about it. We can just trade these goods. Then, of course, you're putting massive downward pressure on places in the world where those standards are, are higher. Um, and, 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 you know, that's, that's the, the impact of trade deals over the last 30, 40 years has been precisely to put that downward pressure on. I mean, you've experienced it too, right? There's a lot of talk there about offshoring and so on. Companies just going to places in the world where regulations are lowest and pay is lowest. And that means people in the U.S. lose their jobs because they simply can't compete with that kind of production model anymore. And you point out that the U.S.-U.K. trade deal is likely to reflect all that is wrong with our global trading system, a system which has played a key role in the creation of an unsustainable anti-social economy, which has handed the major decisions over our lives to a super rich elite. The political crisis we are now facing are living through is an inevitable product of this system. What is the attraction to supporting a system that is, as you call it, unsustainable anti-social economy, which has handed the major decisions over our lives to a super rich elite? What's the attraction? Now, I understand the attraction from the super rich elite's point of view <laughs> and how they will want to profit from it. But what's the attraction from the people who are not the elite? Well, what we're finding, and I mean, you know, we found it with trade deals for, for a number of years now, is that when people actually learn what's in them, they don't really support it. So we've got opinion polls showing, you know, people in this country say, look, if this trade deal means lowering food standards, we don't want it. We don't want it, whatever the whatever the benefits may be. We don't want to do that. If it means threatening our health system, we don't want to do it. And they've said that really loud and clear. The problem is the the, the elites um, um, proceed um, as if as if uh, the people are say aren't speaking on they they don't hear them because it's in their interests um, to, to 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 move forward um, in handing even more power over to to big business and the market. And I think with our elite at this moment, they see look they see at the moment Brexit is this kind of turning point for Britain, right, where Britain could go in lots of different directions. Um, and so they want to use a trade deal. And trade deals are a really great vehicle for this, because once you've got something in a trade deal, it has the weight of international law. So it's very, very enforceable. And also, um, for us anyway, these, these things don't really need to go through our parliament. There's no democratic accountability. They're regarded as international treaties. So they're done in the name of the queen. You know, It's very difficult for politicians to properly scrutinize what's going on, never mind the rest of um, the rest of us. So, so trade deals are a perfect vehicle for kind of, you know, what Naomi Klein called a kind of shock doctrine, I suppose. You know, you, you do it fast in the middle of a crisis and then people kind of wake up and realize what's happened. And, 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 and that's really what they want to do. You know, it's that there's a great American campaigner we've been working with called called Sharon Treat. And I should say here, there's, there's nothing, you know, anti-American um, about this. I'm, many, many parts of American culture I absolutely love. And it's not really even necessarily about 
import, us importing more American products. It's about, in the words of Sharon, it's about us importing the American regulatory um, system. And, and that's what this part of our elite wants to do, because they think that system is more driven by big business interests, more driven by market interests than the one that we've got at the moment. So this is a perfect way for them to embed that in the future. I mean, you were talking um, when I came on there about Mark Zuckerberg. I mean, one of the things um, that's likely to be in this um, deal is, is a whole digital trade chapter, because right? these things are appearing now in trade deals. It's, again, it's not really to do with trade. It's about, it's about the, the, the incredible incredible privileges that big tech corporations like Amazon, Google, um, and, and Facebook enjoy in the global economy. It's about, it's about making rules so that governments effectively can't override those privileges. So our government at the moment is talking about a digital services tax, because you know these companies are incredibly difficult to tax. So they're, they're, they're levying a special tax on them. Um, and and you know the, the negotiators from the US side have said, no, that won't be allowed under a US trade deal, right? So it, it, it interferes in the ability of governments to constrain the power of big business. We are speaking with Nick Dearden, director of Global Justice Now, author of the new book, Trade Secrets, The Truth About the U.S. Trade Deal and How We Can Stop It, which you can read for free at tradesecrets.globaljustice.org.uk. So is trade now weaponized in order to circumvent the political will, the popular will of the people? Is the purpose of trade under neoliberalism to undermine democracy, not just here in the United States or in Britain, but around the world? Oh, I think you've put it really well. Yeah, that's exactly what it's uh, to do with. And, you know, my organization actually is primarily about you know, expressing solidarity and campaigning uh, with people in the global south. Um, uh, and the reason we're campaigning on this U.S. trade deal is, is of course, because it's it's going to be bad, but also because it it wake it helps wake people up to the realities of the modern trade system. Um, and 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 hopefully, what that means is we can also mount campaigns in the years to come against countries in the global south that will be trying to enforce exactly these same standards on. Um, so so yes, absolutely, it is. Uh, it's it is a completely. Uh, I mean, you know, the World Trade Organization obviously in a degree of crisis at the moment but has been completely disastrous for small-scale farmers, small producers, um, and many working people right the way around the world. And it seriously infringed the, the, the ability of countries around the world um, to, to, to protect their people. Um, it, it, it constrains our ability to deal with the climate crisis. You know, one of the most serious crises we, we face on the planet at the moment, governments cannot afford to have their hands tied um, by trade deals, which tell them, no, 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 if this interferes with the privileges of the fossil fuel industry, you just can't do it. You know, we just can't afford to do that anymore. Uh, it, to my mind, I'm not I'm not against trade. I mean, I think trade's just a just a fact of life. You know, it's just we've been doing it for thousands of years. The the question is what rules we employ to, to guide that trade. And I think after the Second World War, you know, there were, there were a very different set of rules. I'm not saying they were perfect again, but um, they were significantly better than we've got now. And what they said is, look, the purpose of sure, you know, lower your tariffs. There's no problem with that necessarily, but only do it if there's a purpose. Is it going to help employment? You know, is it going to secure full employment? Is it going to help your country to, de to develop? If it is, then do it. If it's not, maybe you want to think twice about it. Um, and, 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 and particularly, um, it allowed governments to retain the ability to constrain capital, to constrain um, the, the, the free flow of money around the world. And I think that's what we've got to get 
back to because you know we've seen now surely um, enough devastation in in recent years of our economy of our political system of our environment to know that giving this amount of power to the market is not a good idea and we need to invest um, uh, faith and power and accountability back in the people yesterday we were talking with fabian scheidler author of the end of the mega machine and fabian argues and he's not alone that it is our industrial agricultural system here in the United States that damages our biosphere, uh, promotes climate change. It can spread viruses quickly, even making a fertile environment for deadly pandemics to arise, that we cannot address viruses or climate change without changing our industrial agricultural system. And Fabian isn't the only one. We've also recently spoken with Helena Paul, who wrote the article Looking Beyond the Pandemic, Agroecology, and the Need to Rethink Our Food System, which was posted to the website Radical Ecological Democracy. And she also saw industrial agriculture as a vehicle for a virus, contributor to climate change, environmental destruction. Is the U.S. using trade deals to export industrial agriculture, the kind that can spread viruses quickly, actually be the incubator for viruses and contribute to climate change and other biosphere devastation? And if so, is that the current debate within Britain that we might have the kind of industrial agriculture that will contribute to climate change and can spread viruses? That, that's absolutely right. That's absolutely right. And and in fact, um, the US administration, not just this one, I mean, to be fair, successive administrations have um, really been in the pocket of, of big agribusiness when it comes to negotiating trade deals. They've said absolute bottom line is, you know, you accept food made to these standards. And and what we're finding, and, and my goodness, we found it over the last year, haven't we, um, that these food standards are not only bad um, for small farmer livelihoods. Um, they're not only bad for you know erosion of the soil's fertility and so on, but they actually help um, uh, the, the, the incubation um, of, 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 of horrendous um, uh, viruses um, that can bring the whole world to a standstill. So, um, and you know, there was a, the, I mean, uh, I, I think that the, the trade representative um, Lighthizer was before a congressional committee recently. And, and one of the Democrats on that committee even said to him, look, what, I mean, what, what's the deal with these, these food standards? If they want different food standards, you know, maybe there's something to be said for it. Maybe we should start looking at different a different set of food standards as well. Um, I, I absolutely think it's true. And I think it's it, it, it doesn't benefit the vast majority of American people any more than it um, benefits the, the, the majority of British people um, that these sort of industrial agricultural food standards spread around the world. But we know that our Prime Minister Boris Johnson absolutely uh, uh, wants at least some of them. I mean, genetic modification, which obviously is 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 much as a, accounts for a much higher proportion of food production in the U.S. than it does here at the moment. He absolutely wants it. He absolutely wants um, um, a, a more. I mean, they call it science-based, right? But 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 by science-based, uh, when we all favour science, but it, this isn't really about like science dictating what goes on the supermarket shelves. Um, it's 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 about big business and the market dictating what goes on supermarket shelves. And and what science-based in trade deals means is is a throw caution to the wind you know unless you can prove this is going to kill somebody or is going to be really damaging to somebody um uh, by which time of course it's too late then this stuff has got to go on the supermarket shelves and 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 and, and nothing can get in the way of that and and that's absolutely what a part of our elite wants to the, the standards that they want to adopt and it's it's disastrous for all of us Again, as uh, Fabian pointed out on yesterday's show, the argument is this is science-based, but it purposely ignores 
the science of climate change as well as the science that shows <laughs> industrial agriculture is devastating the environment. So to what extent is it really science-based? And to what degree does it use science and scientists as a kind of prop to delegitimize grave concerns over climate change and environmental destruction? That's exactly what it does. So so look, what we have at the moment is something we call the, 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 the precautionary principle. And what this means is being a bit more cautious. I mean, trying to reduce the risks all the way along the production chain. So um, it's interesting. In, in, in the UK, one of the things that people have got really um, worried about is, is the idea of, of washing chickens in, in, in chlorine, um, which I don't know how much you, 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 you know, you're even aware of it, but a lot of uh, American chickens are washed in uh, chlorine. The, the, the problem is not necessarily with the chlorine. It doesn't really damage your health very much. But, 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 but the problem is that it's, it's used to disguise a very unpleasant life for the, for the chicken. The chicken is kept in real confinement. You know, it's, 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 it's kind of walking around in its own waste. Um, it, it, it's covered in sores. It really unple- And at the end of the process, you just kind of dunk it in, chick- in, in chlorine to get rid of bleach it, get rid of everything, and then it goes in. We have a very different approach here because we say, look, that it, it, that's bad for animal welfare. It's bad for the environment. Um, and at the end of the day, it's a product that's, 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 that's probably not particularly pleasant um, for people to consume. And so what you should do is try and reduce the risks and the harm from the very moment the chicken you know hatches um, right to the moment that that the, the chicken is on your plate, if you like, and that means you can't employ those kind of methods along along the chain. Um, and 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 if you do that, I think it's it's pretty clear you're going to have a you're going to have a more healthy uh, food system, and you're going to have um, a, a, a better environment. Not least because it means you don't need to pump the poor old chicken full of uh, hormones and steroids and antibiotics to prevent it dying and to force it to grow as quickly as possible. I also point out that U.S. pigs regularly contain ractopamine, which makes pigs collapse, tremble, suffer liver and kidney dysfunction, and even die. No wonder over 160 countries, including Russia and China, have banned it. How much does it appear to you from Britain? How much do you think the U.S. agricultural system cares about the health and well-being, not of the animals they produce, but the people who eat those animals, does U.S. agriculture care about the health of our customers? Because I, I got to tell you, I have had stomach issues for years, and I know almost almost every person I know here in the United States has told me that they have some kind of stomach issue. So we've got really lousy food. So how much do you think the this kind of industrial agriculture system cares about the health of the people who consume their food? I mean, for, for, from what the statistics show us, then they're, they're not, you know, we don't measure statistics in exactly the same way. But from what we can see, it, it seems that food poisoning is certainly much higher um, uh, in, in the US. Um, but of course, there are other kind of more chronic conditions as well. Um, uh, you know, obesity, uh, uh, obesity and diabetes and those kind of related conditions, which come from um, a lack of regulation of the amount of sugars and salts that go into stuff and and poor labeling as well. I mean, it's really interesting, isn't it, that, that, that some people, some free marketeers say, but this is the consumer's choice. You know, if a consumer wants to eat this, they should be allowed to eat it. Well, it's a bit of a disingenuous argument, really, because, of course, you know, how can some how can a farmer or somebody producing food um, compete? with food that's produced to, 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 to lower standards. So you're, you're in danger, actually, of just throwing people who are trying to do something better out of business. But but also the other reason it's disingenuous is, is the negotiators, Trump's negotiators, and we have some leaked papers from inside these negotiations, have argued against labeling standards. They've said, well, we don't think labeling um, the amount of, of, of sugar or salt, we don't think that makes any difference. It's, it's not a good way of, um, of encouraging people to eat more healthily. Well, you know, I mean, it's just 
just it's an incredible statement um, that you don't even think the consumer, the customer has the right to know what's in their food or to make their own decisions about about what they eat. Um, and that would absolutely that absolutely makes me think that they don't have any interest whatsoever um, in, in, in the health of the people who are who are eating the stuff um, that they're producing. I, I, it's, it's just absolutely awful. And, you know, I mean, food obviously is something we care about a lot because we put it into our bodies. But I mean, there's other stuff I look at in the book like you know cosmetics which is it's just unbelievable that you know the 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 stuff that some of the cosmetics manufacturers put into their products um, and and as things stand at the moment the regulator the fda that has has so little power to really you know pull up those businesses who are acting in a completely irresponsible way and say, no, you can't do this. Um, it, it, it really just requires, a, a, in, in my opinion, it, it, it requires um, uh, the, the government, the regulator to, to, to act in the public interest and to say, no, it's not acceptable that businesses allow an individual to, 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 to have to um, navigate their way through all the crap that they put in this stuff um, in order to find out what's good for them and what's healthy. Of course, most people aren't going to aren't going to have the time to do that, and they know that. They know that, and of course, they they also market all of this stuff to us continually um, uh, to, to 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 try to. Um to try to show, to, to, to try to sow kind of confusion around a lot of these products. Um, it's really awful and it, and, it, and, it, and it really needs to be taken in hand. And I think what I would say is by us adopting, by us in Britain adopting those same standards, we're in no way helping the absolutely excellent campaigns that are going on in the United States um, to try to change that system. You write that the U.S.-U.K. trade deal could also lower privacy standards. Britain is currently uh, signed on to the EU's General Data Protection Regulation, GDPR, regarded as a gold standard agreement for online privacy. The U.S. dislikes these regulations. Moreover, the many issues posed by the expansion of the online world into every area of our lives are complex. There is a need for public debate and exploration of ideas by policymakers. Trade rules must not be used to shut that debate down. How much can trade deals end public debate? Are trade rules a threat to public discourse? Can trade rules relegate things like freedom of speech and assembly to the dustbin of history? I, I think they really can. I mean, look, in in in, I know that in Washington at the moment there is a live debate going on about how you regulate big tech in order to prevent online harms, and and there is a big division um, between um, the parties and between various politicians on this issue. Trump has obviously taken a, an extreme view on it and doesn't believe that you need to do anything at all; just let whatever happens happen. Um, uh, and 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 clearly that's that that benefits some of his his campaign tactics and so on. But he actually wants to write that into a trade deal that would so that would prevent us taking the kind of regulatory action that is being discussed in Washington at this time um, in the future. So it's it's kind of like, you know, this is this is a whole new world to us. We're only just waking up to the impact the technology, incredible new communication technologies that we've developed over the last 30 or 40 years are having on our society. We're just waking up to it and we're thinking about how we can ensure um, that these big technology companies don't um, or stop um, uh, 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 harming our privacy, um, harming our democratic rights and so on. These are live discussions. And, 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 and yet this stuff is being written into trade deals now that would prevent governments from being able to take action on this kind of issue. So it's it's incredibly dangerous. I mean, you could end up with a situation here where, you know, we are signed up to a set of standards um, by a U.S. trade deal that even the U.S. decides, and I hope you do in the future, 
you don't want to abide by yourselves. I mean, it's 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 frightening stuff. And it, again, it's one of those ways that trade deals bind the hands of governments. They prevent governments from being able to um, do all manner of things, um, which the electorate is demanding of them. I mean, you know, there are other examples around taking um, uh, services back into public ownership. We used to have a, a public railway system here. Um, uh, we don't. It was privatized. It's been a complete disaster. I mean, it, it, extremely expensive and extremely inefficient. Many people want to take it back into public ownership. Again, the stuff in trade deals, you know, standstill clauses and ratchet clauses, they're called in the terminology, that actually say, no, you can't do that. All you can do is ratchet up liberalization. You can't just take something back into public ownership because that's, that's unfair to the companies that want to bid uh, for the contracts to run this service. You point out that copyright, trademarks, and patents became part of trade rules in 1995 with the passing of the WTO. Of the agreement on trade-related aspects of intellectual property rights or TRIPS, during the 1990s at the height of the HIV epidemic, countries were prevented from rolling out HIV medication because it was covered by these rules, which kept prices of key medicines very high. If we know these rules can keep life-saving medicines from being introduced and making those that are more, making the ones that are introduced more inaccessible when it comes to drugs that address HIV, why does this process continue? Why do we apparently support a health system that is more interested in profits and and patents than in people's lives? And and most importantly, what does that mean in this age of a pandemic? Well, right. I mean, if, if ever there's been a time where um, people have been conscious that they, they need um, medicines, they need vaccines, they need treatments, um, and they need them to be researched in a way that is as collaborative as possible, because that's how you that's how you make that's how you can build on prior knowledge in order to make something better, um, and that they need those at a, at a price that they can afford. Um, uh, this is it. This is that time. And yet, and yet, in trade deals, there is a there is a push um, to, to to ratchet up the power of big pharmaceutical corporations and actually write that stuff into international law. Um, it, it, it's it's very frightening. And and why has it happened? It's happened because of the incredible wealth and power of the pharmaceutical industry, which which frankly no longer serves the public interest in any way whatsoever. I mean, it is far more interested in its share price and and its return to, 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 to its stockholders um, than it is in, in in developing the medicines we all need. You know, it's extraordinary, actually, in recent years, um, pharm- the pharmaceutical industry has spent far more money um, on, on, on giving bonuses to, to shareholders and buybacks of its shares um, than it has on research and development of essential medicines. In fact, most of the research and development on essential medicines is paid for by us, the taxpayers. The government gives them the money um, to research this stuff because they wouldn't do it on their own. And yet they then walk away with uh, 20 years plus of intellectual property protection in which time um, they can they can charge what they want for those medicines. Now, now in the US, you pay an absolute fortune for medicines. And I know it's a it's a it's a big national um, issue that Bernie Sanders spoke about a lot and quite rightly Um, here. we, We still have high prices, but they're not as high. And one of the reasons they're not as high is we have a bit of the National Health Service, which can 
um, which effectively says this medicine is simply not cost effective. It's, it's, it's not good value for money and therefore we won't stock it. And that gives the NHS effectively some leverage to negotiate with the pharmaceutical corporations and bring the price down somewhat. Uh, not enough, but somewhat. And it, and it, it, and it provides some control on those prices. Um, the Trump administration has been absolutely clear this system is completely unacceptable to him. He says we're freeloaders um, of other people's research um, and he wants to he wants to get rid of it. And 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 that that poses a real threat to the NHS because if 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 our health system had to purchase drugs at American prices, um, it, it would pretty soon uh, go bankrupt. And what you would end up with is some people would say, or it simply wouldn't be able to provide all of the new medicines that come out. So what you'd get is some people saying, okay, I need private insurance. I need to go privately with this and, and I'll get these medicines. And you have a two-tier system. You'd end up with a two-tier system where the middle, where, where people who could afford it um, were able to, to get life-saving drugs and those who weren't were kind of um, thrust back on a, on a, on a completely um, inadequate system. I, I think it's really well recognized now that the big pharmaceutical industry is not fit for purpose. It's dysfunctional and it needs massive reform. And, and and at a time when most people are, are waking up to that, I mean, you know, for goodness sake, we have somebody who used to used to be a real, real big cheese in Goldman Sachs who's saying this, you know, he's saying maybe we need to take part of the pharmaceutical um, industry into public ownership because it's so dysfunctional. Um, so this is not just kind of some left wing campaigners arguing this. Um, it, it, it's fairly mainstream thought. Um, and yet at this exact same time, we're writing trade deals which hand those pharmaceutical corporations ever more power um, to be secret with their research to not collaborate um, and to extend their monopoly powers um, even further, even beyond the 20 years that they get as a minimum now. It's a disaster for us. You can only begin to imagine what a disaster it is for countries um, where the the, 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 the the average wages is, 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 is so much lower that there's just they just have no hope of being able to get access to the medicines that they need to prevent their suffering and save their lives. And you describe that disaster as it played out in Argentina, as you write, in the days leading up to Christmas 2001, Argentina was engulfed by one of the worst crises in history, in its history. A decade of economic liberalization had seen poverty soar. Large parts of Argentina's public sector had been privatized on terms which are great for international corporations, but terrible for the people relying on the services. As a debt crisis grew, protests toppled the government. In less than two weeks, Argentina went through five presidents, defaulted on its debt, and then devalued its currency to put the country on a long path to recovery. So we know from history what happens when this kind of economic liberalization takes place. If the U.S. knows, if Britain knows, if the world knows that economic liberalization leads to worse public services, protests, collapsing governments, defaulted debts and devalued currency, which takes a very long time to recover, meaning suffering lasts for quite a while, is the U.S. plan to make the world into Argentina and why would any part of the world want to go through what they've already seen Argentina go through? Well, yeah, you're completely right. And the problem is we have political establishments pushed on um, by those with serious amounts of money. You know, the super rich and the big tail of our of our age is inequality just 
startling, shocking levels of inequality. And, 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 and they've captured our political um, systems and, and they push on politicians to write rules in their interests all the time. Um, and, you know, I, I don't necessarily think it's a case that they're all, that they're all a bunch of, um, of, of sadists, but it's just that's their interest. And, 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 and they have created a, a, a global economy that suits their interest down to the ground and they're not prepared to give anything on. Most of them are not prepared to, 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 to give any of that away, no matter what the consequences. You know, I, I, I think we're in a really dangerous period of history now where the only way that you can really, I mean, you know, the, 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 some corporations are so enormous, they've, they've clearly lost any kind of public support or, 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 or public trust. The only way that the people at the head of those corporations can continue to sit on the vast amounts of wealth um, that they that they hold and, and retain their power is actually is actually by degrading our democratic rights because it's, it's this level of inequality is simply incompatible with with liberal democracy. Um, so 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 I think that's why you're beginning to see this push towards uh, more authoritarian politics. You know, could we be looking here at an authoritarian system of capitalism right the way around the world? Um, you know, I, it, it may well be that Jeff Bezos and, and Mark Zuckerberg uh, say they don't like Trump and his politics, and and I believe them. Maybe they don't like it, but there's a that th th they also have to realize there is a a, a logic. Um, to the inequality that they symbolize and embody in what they do that drives us in the direction of these type of of these type of politics um, and I think that's what's that's what's really frightening and 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 the decisions that we've got to make now are you know I mean many people think well it's okay it's it's either the, the the authoritarian populists of the right, or you or you maybe have a more sensible statesman who's going to take us back to the 90s. There's no going back to 90s kind of liberalism and 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 globalization because that's what created this mess in the first place. The idea it's fine for people just to get you know filthy rich, um, and it, and it's going to have no effect on anybody else. It doesn't really matter. We've seen that that's not true. It erodes the um, the, 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 the spirit and soul of our, of our, econ of our societies. Um, and so if we want, you know, if we want to avoid that really unpleasant authoritarian future, um, we need a radically, a radical transformation of the way that the international economy works. I've got one last question for you, Nick. We've mm. been speaking with Nick Dearden, director of Global Justice Now. you got to check out Nick's book, Trade Secrets, the Truth About the U.S. Trade Deal and How We Can Stop It, which you can read for free at tradesecrets.globaljustice.org.uk. If you want to have a better understanding of what it means when we're talking about trade deals, when you see trade deals in the news, you got to read Nick's book. One of the things you write in your book, well, first of all, our final question for each and every one of our guests, Nick, we call it the question from hell, the question we hate to ask. <laughs> We hate to ask, you might hate to answer, our audience might hate your response. And you write that over 50 cases have been lodged claiming an astronomical $80 billion from the Argentine government. British company Anglian Water was a party to one of those claims, having been part of a consortium that took over the Buenos Aires uh, water system. And despite claims of atrocious service, lack of investment, and a rise in waterborne diseases, Anglian and partners claimed the price freeze breached their rights. Argentina countered that the rights of its citizens should surely be the paramount concern, but the tribunal, these are those courts, the ISDS courts, but the uh, tribunal decided human rights should not override investor rights and found in favor of Anglian water. Is that what the current global political divide is? Is it between those who support property rights over human rights? Are, is that what we're seeing right now in the streets, the protests? Is it people who believe in human rights versus people who believe in property rights? 
I think it is. I think it is. I mean, look, the, 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 the right to property is, is enshrined in human rights. But I mean, what people really meant is the government can't just kind of, you know, come and take your house away from you. <laughs> Actually, that 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 particular bit of, of the human rights charter has been taken uh, and and promoted above all other rights and uh, has been applied to to wealth and property, no matter the scale of that wealth and property. And in trade deals, what you see is an absolute enshrinement of that right um, to, to property and wealth by um, big corporations and big investors, I, by and large, the richest people in the world. And it trumps every other every other right that you might be interested in um, uh, uh, our, our right, whether that be the right to, to food and water or, or democratic rights or, or a right to a, a sustainable environment that's going to sustain our lives on this earth. Um, and, and that's absolutely the problem. I mean, you know, you, you, some of what you see in trade deals is really complex and technical stuff and, and difficult for people to understand and so on. But I think you can, you, you can pull some really simple um, rules and lessons um, out of it and, and one is um, this is just an enshrinement of 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 the of the power and the right and so-called rights I would say privileges of the super rich um, right at the heart of the global economy um, and and it's become impossible to enforce um, anything else no matter how rational or sensible um, those other um, those other things that we care about may be um, they are as of nothing compared to the to, to, to the to the property rights and the privileges of, of the super rich and and you know we just cannot go on like that we know that when you have staggering inequality in a society um, you end up um, with, uh, with with war with people turning to to, to, to anything um, in order to give them some protection you know whether that be fascism or whatever it is um, and 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 that plays into you know really serious um, world ending conflict at a global level. Um, we cannot continue down this path. We have got to rein in um, these, these, these titans that control our world at the moment. And one of the ways um, we have to do that is completely rewriting the way that the trade system works. Nick, thank you so much for being on our show and uh, look forward to us annoying you in the future with more interview requests because this has been a fantastic conversation. Your book is really great and I was checking out your organization at their website and it looks like a fantastic group that we should be in contact with on a regular basis and thanks for tipping us off to Sharon Tree as well. So thank you so much for being on the show. That's a complete pleasure. Thank you. Bringing you bong-hitting journalism. Since 1996, this is Hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, captive radio show host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Alex Jerry. Alex, do we have any more answers to this week's question from Hell? Oh, yeah. So, <laughs> we do. Yes, the answer <laughs> yes, is yes. Uh, I forgot the question from Hell for a second. Uh, what is at the bottom of your downward spiral? What is at the bottom of your downward spiral? Aaron D. says, a date with Kimberly Guilfoyle. <laughs> Stephen S. says, an upward spiral. Uh, I think you're just upside down there, Stephen. <laughs> Astrid says, a dirty mask trampled in the filth of pandemic. <laughs> Scott S. says, a stale bag of Cheetos, a warm Budweiser, and a joint rolled in 1972. <laughs> Krimsky K. says, a mirror. What's at the bottom of your downward spiral? Justin H. says, the delusion of meaning. Arnell G. says, being trapped in a post-apocalyptic world's last nursing home, fighting with Donald Trump and Joe Biden over the world's very last Egg McMuffin. Uh, first of all, Alex, congratulations on a fantastic question from Alex. These answers are great. Keep going. Uh, Barrett M. says, more downward spiral. <laughs> Mark A.C. says, facing down the horde of AR-15 toting magites on the streets of Chicago after the collapse. <laughs> 
Kyle J says, a pointless orgy of violence triggered by hearing high hopes over the music <laughs> system in a department store. Andrew P says, the floor. Julie S says, a slippery slope. Marielle B says, lukewarm tortellini, which is for some reason my favorite. Uh, and Stephen S says, sanity. There's been two references so far to Muzak. And you definitely will find music at the bottom of your downward spiral. Uh, this week's winner of the question mail gets our new gray on black. This is Hell Trucker's Cap. And you can see that right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question mail at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. Alex, who's on tomorrow's show beginning when? Uh, 2 p.m. Central Time. 2 p.m. Central Time. Another West Coast guest flexing there. I don't want to get up early muscles. Uh, <laughs> but we'll accommodate William I. Robinson, who uh, had the most listen to interview of was it last year or the year before last year uh last year uh so Jesus, check this year's long <laughs> <laughs> uh so uh this we're gonna be talking to william i robinson about his new book the global police state a critical look at the